Support for this podcast is provided by the American Bar Association Tax Section. Are you looking to make valuable connections with government officials, academics, and tax professionals? ABA Tax Section membership provides you with opportunities year-round to engage and network in your area of practice. Members receive discounts on meetings, CLE, and publications, and membership also provides you with free, on-demand CLE and special members-only news and updates. Discover how membership can benefit you and join at ambar.org slash taxnotes. That's ambar.org slash taxnotes. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, Legal Maelstrom. There's a tax case that's been working its way through the appeals process that delves into the relationship between tax law and regulations in the U.S. In Whirlpool v. Commissioner, the appliance maker is fighting an assessment on some of its foreign income in a case that's drawn interest from a number of third parties, who see the outcome affecting their arrangements as well. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Gary Wilcox, who'll be discussing his article examining administrative law questions raised by the foreign tax credit regulations. But first, here to talk more about Whirlpool v. Commissioner and its possible consequences is TaxNotes senior legal reporter Andrew Velarde. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Good to be here. All right. Why don't you first start us off with what is this case all about? Sure. Let's talk big picture here. It's a subpart F branch income dispute related to Whirlpool's manufacturing operations in Mexico, which could end up costing the company around $100 million in tax expense over the last decade. At the center of the dispute is the foreign branch company sales income rule, FBCSI, a Whirlpool restructuring and government allegations that the new structure represented, quote, the paradigm of abuses that Congress had targeted when creating the rule. The final ruling in favor of the government could have significant ramifications beyond the company itself, as you alluded to, Dave, given that Whirlpool is not alone in using the tax structure at issue here, and the appellate court's ruling could be read very broadly if one were so inclined. All right, well, let's get into that. What is this transaction at issue? So in detail here, in 2007, Whirlpool restructured its operations, creating two foreign entities at issue here. You have Whirlpool Overseas Manufacturing, WAM, a controlled foreign corporation organized in Luxembourg with a single part-time employee, and Whirlpool Internacional, WIN, a disregarded entity not separate from WAM organized in Mexico. WIN did the manufacturing and assembly of washers and refrigerators, while WAM held title to the materials and the inventory. See, Whirlpool had looked to take advantage of the Mexican maquiladora incentive scheme, which allows tax and duty-free importation of materials if the finished goods are exported out of the country. Whirlpool received a tax ruling from Luxembourg confirming WAM's sales income was attributable to a Mexican permanent establishment and therefore not taxable in Luxembourg. And the income was not taxable in Mexico either because WAM was not considered to have a Mexican permanent establishment by that tax authority and the Luxembourg-Mexico tax treaty. Because of U.S. tax deferral, the income was also not immediately taxed in the U.S., So what did we have here? Well, according to the IRS, you had stateless income from a restructuring done solely for tax reasons. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. 
Ranked number one on the West Coast and number five nationwide, this innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student-to-faculty ratio, cutting-edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's graduate tax program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information and to apply to this highly selective program, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. All right, so clearly the IRS chose to challenge this arrangement. So, so what is the rule at the heart of the dispute? Sure, Dave. Uh, there's a manufacturing exception to income treated as FBCSI for related party sales. But the IRS argued WAM couldn't use that because of the branch rules. So let's talk about that a little bit. Under Section 954D2, foreign branch sales are taxable FBCSI when a CFC uses a branch outside its country of organization, and that use has substantially the same effect as use of a wholly owned subsidiary would. I want you to remember that, that term there, substantially the same effect. That's going to come back. The branch rule of Section 954D2 was enacted as a backstop to the general rule for subpart F income under Section 954D1, which was itself designed to catch income made through a low-tax subsidiary separated from the related party manufacturer. Now, under regs, when determining if there was a substantially same effect, the branch rules institute a tax rate disparity test. This is a complex mechanical test, but if you fail the test, the manufacturing branch and the remainder are treated as separate corporations when determining FBCSI. Whirlpool argued that the test can't be applied unless the CFC's remainder has income allocable to the purchasing and selling activities, which it said it didn't have. And as a final fallback argument, Whirlpool also challenged the validity of the Section 954D2 regs, arguing they exceeded the scope of the statute. Okay, so this case was first taken up at the tax court. So how did the tax court find? Correct, yeah. So litigation started at the tax court several years back. Briefing was in 2019. And close to a year after that, we finally got a decision from the tax court, which handed a victory to the IRS. The Mexican branch was treated as a subsidiary of the Luxembourg CFC, and the sales income earned by the CFC constituted FBCSI. It was clear that WAM carried on activities through WIN, according to the tax court. Examining the, quote, substantially same effect prong as if the branch were a CFC, here's a quote from Judge Lauber. By carrying on its activities through a branch or similar establishment in Mexico, Whirlpool Luxembourg avoided any current taxation of its sales income. It thus achieved substantially the same effect, deferral of tax on its sales income, that it would have achieved under U.S. tax rules if its Mexican branch or a wholly owned subsidiary deriving such income. That is precisely the situation that the statute covers. In short, even without the refinements supplied by the regulations implementing Section 954 D2, the bare text of the statute literally read indicates that Whirlpool Luxembourg sales income is FBCSI that must be included in the petitioner's income under subpart F, end quote. But the court wasn't done there. It also did examine the regs in determining the substantially the same effect through allocation of income between the branch and the remainder CFC, and then through a comparison of actual and hypothetical tax rates. That's how the rules work. I won't get 
more into the details of how those mechanical rules operate because the court summed it up best when they said, quote, the text is again quite dense and the relevant sentence is not one that Ernest Hemingway would have written. I just love that line. But applying the test, the court held that Guam was taxed at an appreciably lower rate than the rate Mexico would have taxed it at, assuming a 28% hypothetical Mexican rate. And thus it held it was substantially the same. This structure, quote, epitomizes the abuse at which Congress aimed the selling corporation derived income from the sale of property without any appreciable value being added to the product by the selling corporation. And then as a final note, the court easily dispensed with the argument that the rates were invalid since they, they found that nothing in the statute prevented Treasury from writing rules to address manufacturing branches. All right. Well, that, that seems to have closed the door pretty hard on Whirlpool's transaction, but they took this on to the appeals court. So, so where did the case go from there? Sure. This might be for Whirlpool a little bit. Be careful what you wish for when they did their appeal here. So Whirlpool did appeal to the Sixth Circuit and they lost there in December as well, though the focus at that level was far more on the statute itself rather than an examination of the regs, uh, which could be to the detriment of companies beyond Whirlpool. Again, though, the focus was on what it means to have substantially the same effect. The court looked to the legislative history behind the statute, and while Whirlpool pleaded with the court to look at the regs, the court said the statute was clear and the regs could not change that. I have a quote here from the circuit court now. The agency's regulations can only implement the statute's commands, not vary from them. And the relevant command here that Lux's sales income shall constitute foreign-based company sales income of Lux could hardly be clearer, the court held. It's worth noting that the appellate court was split, however, and the dissent argued that WAM didn't have any FBCSI because it manufactured the property it bought and sold, and it cited to the regs. Under those regs, WAM bought property that is substantially transformed before it sold it, and the dissent criticized the IRS for reading requirements into the regs that weren't there when expressing concern over how much Wong monitored and controlled the manufacturing done by Wynn. Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes. And their solutions are designed to affordably scale with businesses as they grow. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do. But getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations can be endlessly complicated. Avalara keeps track of how thousands upon thousands of products are taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions, and that's just in the United States. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com taxnotes. That's avalara.com slash tax notes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. All right, so 0 for 2. Where does this case stand now and, and what's next? Sure, we've had a few recent developments. Whirlpool wasn't done when it lost at the appellate court. They requested a rehearing with the circuit, warning about the breadth of decision, arguing it could affect hundreds of laws that they argue are only effectuated through regs. The statute in 954 included language under regulation prescribed by the secretary when describing how to determine FBCSI for branches. According to Whirlpool, this language meant that the statute could only be implemented through regs, and the circuit was wrong not to examine those regs. That language, importantly, applies to many other statutes beyond 954 as well. 
But speaking of just 954, Whirlpool argued that the companies had relied on those regs for more than 50 years and that by ignoring them, a large amount of investment decisions would be put in jeopardy as it could apply to many maquiladora structures. Now, how many maquiladora structures out there is not easily discovered, I know, because I've tried. But some estimates put it at around 3,000. So perhaps it should come as no surprise that some prominent industry groups voiced support for a rehearing and warned about the potential fall. Now, this rehearing request was, was ultimately denied by the court. Included among these groups was the National Association of Manufacturers and the United States Council for International Business, just to name two of them. They expressed fears similar to Whirlpool's against the circuit court decision that by rejecting an analysis of the regs, it could be read even broader than the tax court's decision. The government, for its part, asserted that the statute was self-executing, and the circuit engaged in a case-specific analysis of the facts, and the decision wouldn't catch taxpayers that didn't engage in a similar tax avoidance scheme like Whirlpool. Those taxpayers could still rely on the regs. There had been some speculation that the court would rehear the case. After all, they asked for a full briefing on the matter, and there were multiple amicus briefs filed in this case. In the end, though, however, with only the dissent from the decision in favor of granting the rehearing, the original circuit decision stood and the rehearing request was denied. We'll have to wait to see what the true ramifications are. There's already been at least one disclosure from a multinational auto parts manufacturer and an SEC filing that is attempting to distinguish its Mexican Luxembourg Maquiladora relationship from Whirlpool in the face of the IRS asserting a $325 million more in income tax expense in that case. How many more companies will be affected is not yet clear, that it's a safe bet that many are closely analyzing this case. Yeah, we'll definitely have to uh, keep an eye on this issue and follow up when we find out exactly how big it is. Well, Andrew, this has been great. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me. Now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Matthew Stevens and David Martin examine tax issues arising from investing in single-stock swaps and analyze basket swaps. Lee Shepard examines the judicial record of Supreme Court nominee Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. In Tax Note State, Brian Hauser and Kevin Herzberg consider how state laws are handling taxing cloud transactions. Nikki Dobay and Jeremy Gov explore the tax compliance questions that remain in the wake of Wayfair. In Tax Notes International, Robert Van Brederode examines the collapse of the Dutch wealth income tax. Six KPMG practitioners examine the new R&D capitalization rules and how they affect common transfer pricing arrangements. In Featured Analysis, Marie Sapiri examines what the IRS can do for identity verification to better respect taxpayers' privacy interests than it did with its implementation of a facial recognition system last year. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here's Tax Notes Federal Editor-in-Chief Ariel Greenblum. Thanks, Paige. I'm here with Gary Wilcox, a partner with Mayor Brown. Welcome to the podcast, Gary. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're here to discuss your Tax Notes Federal article titled, Will Jurisdictional Nexus Survive Chevron Step 1, which you co-authored with Lucas Giardelli. Could you give us a brief overview of the article? Yes. Obviously, it relates to the recent foreign tax credit regulations and the addition 
of a so-called jurisdictional nexus requirement, or it's, it's referred to in the final regs as an attribution requirement. It represents a significant change in the rules for claiming foreign tax credits and literally overnight has cost multinational companies uh, significant amounts of new tax. They are under immense pressure to sort out how these regs will play out in a number of countries, and they have their first quarter earnings coming up. So it's a bit of uncertainty for companies in a, in a rushed amount of time to deal with. And I guess all of that kind of gets your attention. I started looking into it and, and noticed that there were some excellent articles out there on the earlier proposed regulations, highlighting the history of the Section 901 credit for foreign income tax and you know, discussing how that, that provision has more or less remained the same for over 100 years. Obviously, the code section has changed in number, but the words of the statute have not changed in more than 100 years. And I, I thought, well, you know, what could I contribute that's different? And I think a lot about how a court would address the validity of regulations, and I decided to really focus the argument on, well, now that we have final regulations and, and what's done is done, going forward, how would a validity challenge play out in the courts? And I, I have to admit, when I first started thinking about this, I go, oh gosh, you know, this is going to be really difficult for taxpayers. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I don't think the regs were a good idea. I don't think they should have been issued particularly with there being a lack of any indication from Congress that Treasury had the authority to impose these new requirements. But to say a reg is invalid is a whole different and, and far more challenging question. And we're dealing with a statute, as I said, hasn't changed much since it was originally enacted in 1918. There's very little legislative history, other than the fact we know Congress was trying to prevent taxpayers from being subject to double taxation. The operative term in the statute is income tax. And admittedly, when you have a term like that, that's not defined in the statute, both taxpayers and uh, the government have successfully in certain cases established that there's an ambiguity due to the lack of a definition. And, and based on that ambiguity, you can argue that there's an implied delegation of authority to Treasury to write regulations to clarify that ambiguity. And, and once it's determined there's an ambiguity, you get into the so-called step two of the Chevron deference standard where you know the odds of a taxpayer challenging a regulation go up exponentially uh, against the taxpayer at that stage. And, and the reason is you have to basically show that the government has acted unreasonably. And to say that it was unreasonable to issue regs interpreting a statute that's been around for a hundred years with what is now an established meaning. Well, that's unreasonable. Or, you know, the fact that it wasn't contemporaneous, that's unreasonable. Well, those aren't really problems in, in step two. And as I started thinking about it more and, and researching, I became more convinced that this issue would really play out in step one of Chevron, where you know, the question is, is the statute ambiguous or, or is there some sort of silence where you can say that Congress delegated authority to Treasury to, to write regulations? I focused this article 
on step one to, to kind of play out what steps a court would take in the Chevron step one analysis, what evidence it would consider, and at what point would it defer to Treasury? Thanks, Gary, for that. What prompted you to write about this topic? I had clients asking me, can Treasury really do this? I, I think also whenever you see such a drastic change in the, I will call the law, these regulations are intended to have the force of law without there being an underlying change in statute, you know, my antenna just goes up. And, uh, you know, to me, it was worth exploring combined with requests by clients to, to look into it. It made it a, a really interesting topic to explore further. Great. Before we let you go, where can listeners find you online? I'm with Mayor Brown. I'm on the Mayor Brown website. My email is there. You can look me up or uh, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Gary. Thank you, Ariel. Glad to do it. You can find Gary and Lucas's article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our new YouTube channel, Tax Notes, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com slash podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.